So all those who left will have missed the secret teachings. (laughs) I'm not sure how many of you uh, noticed or listened to the the little instructional words uh, during the sitting, but I was, during the sitting, I was pointing to the the naturalness, the, the, I think I even used the word, the primordial nature of, of being aware, of awareness, and invited you to simply be aware of being aware, and just notice how natural it is to be aware, that awareness is unconditional, it's unconditioned, it doesn't... Uh, It does not have to be created. It is, it's, it's what you are before you can think, before you can even remind yourself that you're a man or a woman or whatever your role or your title. All you can really say is, I am, and you probably, the only thing you can really say without consulting the past about I am is I'm aware, I'm awake. And so you can see that awareness is completely natural. And a lot of our practice is to remember that. But what helps us remember to be aware is, is to notice all of the things that, that make us think that we need more than this that we need more than to simply be aware and awake, to be happy. And that's what we pay attention to. That's a lot of what we pay attention to in our practice. One element of that would be simply to pay attention to not simply what it is that you're noticing, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, the sensations, Those things arise naturally in awareness, and it's never, ever a problem that something is happening, because that's what life is. It's a display, it's an endless display of changing experiences. Basically, six experiences that repeat themselves over and over. Sight, sound, smells, tastes, sensations, thoughts, and that is, in some ways, the all, the totality of our life, is this unfolding present of six experiences. And those six experiences are not, um, they are not uh, fundamentally problematic. Thoughts are not problematic. Sounds are not problematic. Smells are not problematic. Sensations are not problematic. They are problematic. They're a little bit more challenging when they're un- when they have an unpleasant feeling associated with them. But that's really not what's so problematic. And if we were simply to notice this this, this wonderful symphony of changing experience, it would simply enhance and brighten and remind us of the of the glory, you might say, of the of this of this amazing reflective capacity we have to be aware. It is quite amazing. How is that possible? 
that we can be aware? How, how is it possible to be aware of sounds? Now we can say, oh yeah, because I have an ear and, and I have eyes and I have nose, but what is it that knows that? And there's, and clearly when we look at what that, what that awareness is, we can see that there is no discernible doer of awareness. There's no locatable somebody who's aware. There's just things being known, and awareness is just primary. It's, it's there. If I tell you or ask you to stop being aware right now, what happens? This fundamental nature is right there, aware. So this is not problematic. Awareness and the various objects that keep freshening that and reminding us of awareness, all the, the many things that happen. What becomes problematic, what the Buddha called the three poisons, are certain, certain uh, you could say, attitudes of mind that turn these six experiences into something really problematic. And this is an important area, I think, maybe the most important area that we can become uh, vigilant about in our practice, where this is a, a, a very, uh, this is the difference. It is these attitudes of mind, the way it is never about what's happening in our inside or our external. Our suffering, our distress has everything to do with the attitude of mind that we're bringing to what's presenting itself. So if, if I'm experiencing a, uh, a, a horrific event like we spoke of last week, bombing, this is one of those experiences that is, would be called fundamentally dukkha. This is a, an experience that's hard to bear. It's, it's not easy to experience the, the enormity of pain, to open our hearts to it. But if we are simply aware of it, receiving it, with awareness, our heart will respond with compassion, with caring, with, um, with perhaps some kind of uh, inspiration to act or to help or something like that. Then an, an experience of like that met with direct perception, with direct awareness, leads to a, what, we, what we call a wholesome response a wise response, a loving response. But when that same experience is met with an attitude of resistance, fear, um, anger, certain attitudes of mind that, that shut down, that narrow our focus, that make it, whatever that experience is, outside of ourselves as other, as not part of the, this magical display, part of the openness of the vastness of our heart, as soon as we make it outside and other, that same experience becomes one of not just the basic dukkha of, of 
being hard to bear, but it turns into mental suffering. It turns into a it turns into reactivity. If we can experience the uh, great joys that and beauty that shows up in life, and it we receive it with awareness, we experience this amazing sense of a shared or uh, appreciative or altruistic joy. We can we delight in in the uh, in the senses in in experience. This is when we meet pleasant experience with openness. But when we meet when we meet pleasant experience with wanting something, with trying to hold on to the experience, with trying to replicate the experience, trying to trying to um, to cling to the experience, dwelling on craving for the experience, that very experience of beauty and joy and love and all those things that are part of the amazing display of our life turns into a kind of mental suffering, turns into a, a distressing... It may not appear so on the, on the surface because the image of what I want to happen is often really pleasant and it produces on the surface a kind of pleasant feeling but it turns our internal world, our emotional world, into one of, as I always call it, a, a feeling of suspended happiness, a feeling of contraction, a kind of burning with desire. A, a turn, it, turns, uh, it, it turns the, as we all know, it turns the present moment into some place that we're just passing through on our way to get what we want. And it, and it, it in a sense, destroys... The, um, our capacity to experience uh, all the beauty and all the love that we can right where we are. We end up thinking that we have to wait for it. We have to hope for it. It has to be because I can replicate my, that experience that I had last year or I can hold on to the one I'm having right now. All of that turns the present moment into a place of tension. When we can experience our loved ones, our, the, the people who, ha- we, who have to live with us every day, the, our co-workers, etc., if we can experience them with openness, it's really, when I think about it, it's sometimes really hard with our loved ones, except when, when we're in a, in a, a good mood, it's very easy to be seeing them through the lens of, of what, especially our partners, you could say. There's a tendency to think of them as what they reflect about ourselves and whether they're acceptable or whether they're, whether they're enough the way they should be or, or I'm enough of what I should be. And there's often this, some, this, this projection game that goes on but all of that, all of the, the ways that we relate to, uh, to each other often is not one of just complete openness. If we were to relate to each other with complete openness, with mindfulness, with heartfulness, then uh, we, 
Our relationships become a become a, a practice, a source of wisdom, a source of self-understanding, a source of understanding the other person, a source of compassion, a channel of love. It, all the beauty comes from, from being mindful. But if we experience another person continually through the lens of what does their behavior, what does it mean about me? If it's all about me, if it's I like this and I don't like that, I, I want this and I don't want that, you should be this, you should be that, if I view them through uh, what I call the what we what the Buddha called the personality view, the view of self, which means my views, my opinions, everything about me, then I tend to have conflict, and I tend to fall into the first one. I was fall I fell in, into aversion, or hatred, or ill will. Fear is one element of that. The second thing I spoke about when I talked about beauty and joy, that was we tend to fall into, into um, greed or grasping. And the third, when everything becomes about me, this is called delusion. So the way that shows up in a simple moment of interaction is to notice, and how we can practice with it, is when we're hanging out with our partner or our friend or our coworker to continually check what's the attitude of the mind that's noticing right now? Is there greed in the mind? Do I want what I don't have right now with this person or with this situation or with this thing? Because if I don't notice that, I will be caught in a wheel of suffering. I'll be in that, that place where I can't be happy now. Now, I also want to notice when I'm with somebody or in a situation, to check, is there resistance in the mind? Is there aversion? Is there anger in the mind? Is there ill will? Now, usually we don't tune into this attitude of mind. We usually just project it on whatever the object of ill will is. We usually just fly off and get mad, as though what some person did made us angry. Nobody has ever made us angry. Do you realize that? That just blows my mind when I think about it. No one has ever made us angry. We have seen something, heard something, felt something, and it triggered in us, based on our own, uh, our views, associations, likes, dislikes, self-idea, we, we react, especially if it as we talked about last week, if it, if it feels threatening to who I think I am, if it's a place that I'm vulnerable, I, I tend to get angry. If, 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 my, if a desire that I'm having is frustrated, I tend to get angry. If, I, if my pride is wounded, I get angry. Has nothing to do with what that other person did. It's that something, some bottom fell out of the sense of security and a sense of okayness. But nevertheless, it tends to then get projected. What we can do to cut that chain is to track as we're going through our day. Is there aversion in the mind? So we, instead of focusing on the object of, of the person or the situation or everything that we're mad at, we turn our attention 
to the state of mind that we're experiencing. Oh, is there resistance in the mind? Is there ill will in the mind? Is there aversion? Oh. And in this way, when we notice these different attitudes, trying to make something happen, trying to get somewhere, do you notice that in your meditation? As soon as you sit there and you're going and you try to make something happen in your practice, this is greed in your practice. You know what it does to practice? It turns you into a meditator. It makes you become a big shot meditator on that road that's moved from the past through the present to the future. It creates this whole identity. And then you're busy meditating instead of being mindful. And the second thing that happens is it creates tension. It creates tension. And the next thing that will, you'll, will show up after the tension ensues is that you will start to feel really tired. You'll wear yourself out because you'll make excessive effort. And this gets, you could extrapolate this to so many areas of our life when there's greed in the mind. It tends to make us tight, it makes us exhausted, and it, it makes us unplug, unplug from the inexhaustible vitality and nourishment that we can get from settling back into the moment and letting life happen. It turns us into imagined doers, into meditators. Remember, we talked about earlier, there is no locatable doer of meditation. There is no meditator. There is no thinker. There is no hearer. There is no smeller. There is no taster. There is no locatable uh, agent for this whole magical display that shows up. And greed in the mind, hatred in the mind, delusion in the mind keeps reinforcing the sense of the doer. And then that doer, when if you've, if you've incarnated as a doer, I don't know if this language makes sense to you, but if you've incarnated as a doer, then you have to be the decider. You know what the decider turns out like. No, that's, only, that's an inside joke for people who are politically aware. <laughs> but I, in all seriousness, the decider in us, the one who's endlessly, maniacally trying to figure out what to do next, when to do it, those, those huge life decisions, those big issues to be solved, from the perspective of the doer, it is, it is a torment. It is a torment that increases the anxiety that I, the one who is, who is the doer, have to get from here to there. And to the degree that I think I'm the one who makes decisions and has to do things and has to get somewhere, which is all a dream, really, I am increasingly in a state of anxiety. One, because I'm projecting, the identity is projecting its well-being to the future that never arrives because time is only now. But secondly, uh, I, am, I am forgetting. I'm become, I've, I've become deluded and I'm forgetting that I am literally, each of us is literally being moved by life, right where it's moving us, right here. That we are in a, we are in a kind of flow. 
that there has never been a decider. There's never, decisions are made, but there's never been somebody who decided. There's been a thought that followed a decision that said, I decided that. This is what I'm going to do. But the process of deciding is is something that just happens when enough information is there, when the situation or conditions conspire to put a certain pressure to make a decision. Decisions get made. But it's, and decisions are often frustrated by thinking that somebody has to make them. So the Native Americans, you've probably heard the expression, don't try to push the river. Being, thinking that, you, that there is a doer or a decider uh, is like trying to push the river. Trying to, to do a sport, I'm, I like to do sports. And when I think that I'm the, one, the actor in a, in a sport, there's always a little bit of tension. I feel as though that I'm, I'm a little bit out of the stream, out of the flow. But when I, even just for a moment as a trigger, I'll just say, let myself be moved by this activity. Let, my, let me be a channel for this activity. You can use whatever language you like. When, when I remind myself that what's moving me is, that one, there is no, that there's no locatable doer for everything that happens in this life, even though conventionally speaking, I'm an individual, we're all individuals, we're all here, we all have our stories, etc. But if you look at the heart of what we call an individual, there's, there is just life moving. Thoughts are thinking themselves, feelings arise, sensations come, decisions get made. All of it is just a happening. And when I can allow that, not try to push the river, go with the flow, you can use whatever expression, as the Native Americans say, stay behind the medicine, let things unfold, then there's a certain magic that happens. I'm no longer in contention with reality. I'm, literate, I'm in harmony with things actually the way they are, which is a selfless unfolding of life. Please. So, so it's the ego that makes you think that there's a doer or a decider. Yeah, ego is, but ultimately ego is egoless. Ego is something that arises, just like, and we call it, you could call it ego, you could call it agency, you could call it I thoughts, you could call it me thoughts, whatever it is, me feelings, but those are, all those feelings are also egoless. So it's, for us as meditators, we're not going to. We're not going to. We, we're here. We're all individual. We all have these little, these little, uh, the sense of me and mine within us. But as meditators, we even see that the sense of me is just another selfless part of the process. Now, when I, when this part of the teachings gets spoken about, a lot of people say, "Well, they get ang- people get angry." Well, I'm here, and yes, you are. But what is it that you're referring to as I'm here? Are you referring to the body? Is there a locatable self in the body? I found a nice little passage as long as we're trying to make a point. This is from, this is from a sutra called the Samyutta Nikaya. And, 
and it's a little technical, so you have to hang in there with me. I know it's late at night, and we're running out of time, but I'll read it to you anyway. It's called uh, Non-Self. The instructed disciples, disciple of the Noble One, does not regard material shape as self, or self as having material shape, or material shape as being in the self, or the self as being in material shape. Nor does he regard feeling, perception, impulses, or consciousness in any of these ways. He comprehends each of these aggregates as it really is, that it is impermanent, unreliable, without self, compounded, woeful. That just means unsatisfactory. He does not approach them, grasp at them, or determine self for me, myself. And this, for a long time, conduces to his welfare and happiness, if he doesn't take these things to be self. The instructed disciple of of the noble ones beholds of material shape, feeling, perception, the impulses, or consciousness. This is not mine. This I am I not. This is not myself. So that when the material shape, feeling, perception, the impulses, consciousness change and become otherwise, there arises no grief, no sorrow, no suffering, lamentation, or despair. So all of our suffering, lamentation, despair is because comes from a misplaced identification, as I call it, a case of mistaken identity. Identifying so much with these, with these things that happen naturally that are without self. So forgetting all that for a while, forgetting all that, I'd like to invite everyone at least to, in the course of the next week or for the rest of your life, to just notice Just notice, in this moment, what's the attitude of the mind that's noticing? I spoke already that, depending on the attitude, if it goes unnoticed, it tends to lead toward uh, toward the sense of, of me, toward mine, what I want to have happen, self. But if the attitude is seen, it tends to, it tends to liberate, it tends to relax. If I see that I'm really wanting something, Just like if I saw that I wasn't breathing, I would likely take a big breath. If I see that I'm holding tightly, in that moment, our intelligence, our wisdom, our love says, let go. And if we see that we're really angry, instead of before we can before it gets dumped onto the 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 world or the person next to us, we can then work with that anger. We can feel the compassion for how painful it is to be burning with anger or burning with desire instead of it having to wander endlessly, trying to get the world or a person to conform to the way we want them to be. That's impossible. That's impossible. As the line that's been helpful for me in this regard a little bit for many years, as I've often reflected, there may not be peace in the world. So I... Get me out of that demand. There may be, not be a peace in the world, but I can be at peace with the world. I can sit in the middle of it without as much reactivity if, uh, if I track the attitude of mind that I'm noticing it with. 
So what's the attitude that I'm experiencing right now? Is it relaxed and open? That's the other one you want to look at. You don't want to just look at the things that cause that are causing distress. You want to notice, is my attitude open, relaxed? Or is it resistant, contentious, angry? Or is it wanting something to happen? Moment by moment, this is when we cut the chain that leads to suffering and end suffering in real time. Just track the attitude of mind that's happening. Anybody have any questions about this before or comments before we go home? Please. Um, one of the, the five things that supposed to identify five aggregates five aggregates is consciousness yes and you're saying that awareness is un- I, yeah. unborn yeah but that's not consciousness conscious yeah consciousness in the in the con- he, the question is i i talk about the awareness being unborn forget the word awareness just sense what's there when when there's when there's no idea of it but the word Sometimes the words consciousness and awareness are used interchangeably. But technically speaking, in the language of the teachings, consciousness means that that knowing faculty that arises with each sense experience and vanishes. So that consciousness comes and goes. That consciousness is not this, as I was speaking of before, that kind of the unconditioned, the primordial awareness. So forget these words. But consciousness is simply so the ear it's ear consciousness or nose consciousness. And that consciousness doesn't belong to anyone. It just arises with it with the experience of hearing a sound. There's a there's an ear, there's a sound, and the consciousness of that, all three of those arise and vanish. That's at least the way it's understood in Buddhist psychology. And that's and that happens, all happens in awareness. But forget that word. <laughs> Thanks for the question. I hope you're all completely confused now. <laughs> That's the mind to which discovery can happen. Anyone else before we call it a night? Please. No one I the comment I made, no one can ever make you angry. Somebody threatens your well-being and physical safety. Your housing, your job, yes. And, and is very aggressive about it. And very aggressive about it, yes. It seems like anger is a healthy response. Well, it seems like anger is a healthy response. Anger is just one of many responses. Uh, and if you lined up, if you lined up ten people, if you lined up a hundred people who were dealing with the exact same situation, you might get a variety of responses. So it's not inherent in the action of that, in that perpetrator in this sense. It's not inherent in what they did that you get angry. You get angry because of the way that experience filtered through your, your particular system, your particular psychology. So if, on the other hand, if every single person responded identically to that, you could say, you could maybe then posit that that, that person's actions made you angry. 
So the point of this is not to say that you don't have, you shouldn't react, but you, rea- but your reaction is very individual. It's very much, it's very much uh, your responsibility. And if you want to react skillfully to a situation where something's being, where some harm is being done to you, then it's likely that the uh, the angry response. Will tend to uh, will tend to blind us. It will tend to lead us to act in ways that add to the that cause more harm. And sometimes it sometimes uh, actually inhibits our ability to respond wisely and uh, appropriately in a situation. So I wouldn't necessarily say as an absolute that anger is an appropriate response. It's one of the possible responses, but it often gets us into trouble. Because it's often a very narrow, it's based on a very narrow view of what's happening. Um, now I can say that having gotten angry, I still get angry millions and millions of times. But I know that the moment I get angry, I've fallen into a kind of delusion. I've I've moved into uh, into a feeling of groundlessness and a uh, and then a tendency to blame another for feeling insecure. Well, I, I, in my better moments, I track it pretty quickly, and in my not so good moments, I make messes before I before I realize it, and that's how it, it goes. And so we're all works in progress with that, but it's been a, a very crucial part of of my own practice to track as much as I can the state of my heart and mind, and especially the attitude of mind that I'm bringing to a situation, and catch it as quickly as I can. Because sometimes it's not in what the other person's doing, it's in the way that I'm reacting, that the suffering comes. So that's something that we only can learn by a direct perception of our reactions and a study of our reactions and an unpacking, a deconstruction of our, of our actions, how the engine that's driving our actions, the intentions behind them, all the things that, that lead us to act in ways that can, that can actually increase harm in our lives rather than lower the heat, bring us to that deepest longing that all of us have, which is uh, peace and well-being, safety. Um, we won't solve it tonight, but thanks for listening. Let's just, uh, without, you don't have to change your position, but we will sit quietly for a moment. And I'd like us all just to reflect uh, that... on that desire to be happy, knowing that all beings, without exception, want to be happy. And in that way, we are connected to all beings everywhere, all creatures, all individuals, all those who draw breath, all those in existence. Every being wants relief. And while we're at it, we can gather all of the the goodness and the blessings of our lives, of our practice, of our time together tonight, and, uh, and bring it into our hearts and then radiate it toward all the beings that we share with and, and send the blessings of our practice with a deep wish that everyone can be happy, peaceful, safe and protected, healthy and strong, that all beings everywhere can live with ease 
and a deep wish that all beings can grow in serenity and equanimity, able to meet the joys and the sorrows of our life, the pleasant and the unpleasant, without so much reactivity. It tends to lead to carelessness, heedlessness, and a deep wish that all beings can be liberated and recognize this sacred happiness that's without sorrow, here and now, unconditional. May all beings be free. And may our practice be dedicated every day to the welfare and benefit of all. Thank you. I mean, I'm called to, before we leave, if any of you are willing to hear a song of awakening that talks about this, that, that really encapsulates the teaching on selflessness that I just shared. This is from a, mon- a, a nun named, uh, uh, named uh, oh, her name is Tietsu. She's from the 1700s. She was standing on the porch of Hakuduan, which was a monastery in Japan. She saw the shadow of a little wren crossed the footpath, followed by the shadow of a hungry cow. And she saw the little wren arose, abided, and fell away. And then she saw that arising arose, abided, and fell away. And that abiding arose, abided, and fell away. And that falling away arose, abided, and fell away. She saw that knowing this, that knowing this arose, abided, and fell away. Then she knew that there was nothing more than this, no ground, nothing to lean on stronger than the cane she held, nothing to lean upon at all, and no one leaning. And she opened the clenched fist in her mind and let go and fell into the midst of everything. Enjoy the flow. Thanks for your generosity as well, and thanks for the generosity of your presence here supporting Mission Dharma. Thank you. See you next week, hopefully, if I didn't scare you away. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.